Hey everyone, and welcome to the Scandinavian History Podcast with me, Michael Schenkman. So far, we've discussed Vikings traveling west, north, east, and south, but we haven't said much about conditions at home. Of course, when the Viking was at home, he wasn't really a Viking at all. That's the whole point of being a Viking. Viking at home is a contradiction in terms. But that's not going to stop us. People had lives back home in Scandinavia as well during the Viking Age. And what was that like? Where did they live? What did they do? Those are the kind of questions we'll tackle in today's episode. Episode 16, The Viking at Home. If you've learned one thing about the Vikings' revenue stream from this podcast so far, it should be that the Vikings weren't only raiders, but also traders. At this time, trade was dominated by large landowners who organized these trading-slash-raiding parties abroad that have taken up the lion's share of the podcast's airtime up until this point. At home, commerce was focused on to the markets. These were usually temporary affairs held in connection to the things. We talked about this in episode 11 about the Icelandic Althing, remember? I hope you do. It will be on the test. But with time, we can also see the development of a number of permanent market towns in Scandinavia during the Viking Age. It's true that they were mostly glorified trading posts, at least to begin with, but still. One early example is Kaupang in Skiringssal in Norway. This town, which is the oldest urban settlement found in Norway, was founded in the late 8th century. It flourished throughout the Viking Age before it was abandoned for reasons lost in time in the 10th century. Archaeological finds there include coins both from Europe and the Middle East, indicating that this was indeed a trading town with a far-reaching network of contacts. Another clue is that the name itself, Kaupang, is related to the word to buy in Scandinavian languages. Incidentally, the Finnish word for town is Kaupunki, indicating both that urbanization was something that the Indo-European Scandinavians brought to Finland, and that the main point of having towns to begin with was to trade in them. Birka, the town on an island in Lake Mälaren in present-day Sweden that we mentioned in episode 13, was founded more or less at the same time as Kaupang, and was an important economic center for the trade in the Baltic Sea until it was abandoned, again roughly at the same time as Kaupang. Birka was probably abandoned due to the tectonic uplift. Just to remind you, during the last ice age, all of Scandinavia was covered by hundreds of meters of ice, and that ice sheet was so heavy that it pushed the land down. Ever since the ice receded, thousands of years ago, the land has been bouncing back, causing Scandinavia to rise from the sea with as much as a centimeter per year in the northern parts. This can be good news if you happen to own property on the coast, since your land expands from year to year. But it also means that harbors and shipping lanes become shallower from year to year. Lake Mälaren, that used to be a bay in the Baltic Sea, was cut off and turned into a freshwater lake. In the end, Birka's harbor became unusable and the town had to be abandoned. A fun fact about Birka is that we actually don't know what the town was called. I know that sounds silly since I called it Birka only a few moments ago, and just did so again, but that wasn't the name the inhabitants used for their own town. At least it probably wasn't. Birka doesn't mean anything in Old Norse or any modern Scandinavian language. Instead, it's probably the Latinized form of whatever the real name of the town was, and that name was maybe, 
perhaps even probably, derived from the name of the island on which the town was located, Björke, or Birch Tree Island. Best known and largest of all the Scandinavian trading towns was Danish Hedeby in Schleswig. And if the name sounds familiar to you, it might be because we talked about Hedeby as well back in episode 13. According to contemporary Frankish chroniclers, Danish King Godfred attacked the Wends town of Rerik in the year 808 and moved the population to his newly founded town Hedeby. Hedeby was an important town and trading hub for hundreds of years. In the mid-10th century, there was a wall surrounding the town of an area of 30 hectares. Archaeologists have found proof of trade links to Alsace, the Rhineland, especially the Frisian Dorstadt at the mouth of the River Rhine, Norway as well as Sweden. In the 10th and 11th centuries, Hedeby was the most important town in Scandinavia. Granted, that didn't mean all that much, since Scandinavian society was mostly rural at the time. Hedeby was so important thanks to its location on the isthmus connecting the North Sea and the Frisians, the major sea-trading people of their day, with the Baltic Sea. Today, the site is no longer located in Denmark, but rather in Germany. In a future episode, we'll get into why that is the case. Whether you were based in Norway, Denmark, Sweden, or some other place, being a merchant could be very lucrative. You could make a lot of money, as witnessed by the many Viking Age hordes of silver coins found here and there in Scandinavia. But those hordes also bear witness to the risks. In order not to be robbed, you had to hide your treasure well, and sometimes you apparently died before having the chance to tell anyone where you'd buried your cache of coins from Constantinople or Baghdad. Beside the professional merchants, many farmers had side incomes from selling furs and fish at markets or in the nearest town. Even though that didn't include traversing oceans and fighting foreign armies, it could still be dangerous. There were many pirates and Vikings out there. It was the Viking Age, after all. There were strict rules against attacking markets, but they were very tempting targets, and traders going to and from the markets were easy prey. If you didn't watch out, you could easily end up on the, as a traded com a commodity yourself at some slave market. That's why merchants often traveled in large guarded convoys. Traditionally, and certainly still during the Viking Age, forests were areas that were difficult to traverse, and dense forests served as border areas almost in the same way as mountains did. The Old Norse word for forest, mark, also meant border. This is the word we have in Denmark, for instance. People didn't live in the forests, even though they used the forests as a, so as a source for fuel, game, berries, and other food. There were also all sorts of dangerous creatures living in the forests. Anything from bears and wolves to witches and trolls would attack you if you happened to stray too deep into the woods. Everyone knew that. As a rule, it was best to give forests, and wild nature in general, such as mountains and marshlands, a wide berth. Viking Age Scandinavians respected nature, but that respect was the cousin of fear rather than love. They were acutely aware that they lived in and off nature, but they certainly didn't want to be one with it. That may come as a surprise to anyone familiar with modern-day Scandinavian attitudes to nature. The contemporary romanticized and idealized view of nature that is so common among Scandinavians is largely a product of 19th century urbanization. For instance, the Scandinavian national anthems, praising the land and its natural beauty, were all written by city-dwelling men who were no longer exposed to nature in their day-to-day -day life. So Viking Age Scandinavians did what they could to avoid traveling through forests and over mountains. They much preferred to travel by ship whenever possible. 
This meant that access to the sea or other navigable waterways decided the location of towns in Scandinavia, like in most places in the world. But, as I mentioned before, unlike most other places, the land kept rising, depriving earlier coastal settlements of their access to the sea. Unlike Dublin, York and other towns run by the Vikings abroad, all the important trading towns in Scandinavia from the Viking Age have been abandoned, largely due to the changing topography. But as the Viking Age turned into the Middle Ages, we see the establishment of the first towns that still exist to this day. This is because that was the time when the Scandinavian kingdoms started to form, and kings got into their heads that they should establish towns like real kings did down south in mainland Europe. Up until this point, trading towns had sprung up spontaneously where it was most convenient, but when the Viking Age gave way to the Middle Ages, not all towns developed spontaneously, but some were founded. And the reason behind their founding wasn't necessarily economic, but could fulfill some other political or religious need of the powers that be. In the 10th century, Danish kings went on a founding spree and founded Aarhus, shortly thereafter Odense, Viborg and Roskilde. Lund, also founded in the 10th century, soon became the most important town in all of Scandinavia as a royal and especially Christian centre, becoming the seat of the church in Denmark. Sigtuna filled a similar function in Sweden, and Trondheim was founded around the year 1000 to serve the same purpose in Norway. These last three were not spontaneous trading posts, but established by the king to strengthen his grip on, the, on his kingdom. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. We'll have reason to return to political shenanigans in the Middle Ages in future episodes. The topic at hand is still life in Viking Age Scandinavia. Even though the towns filled their function, the vast majority of Scandinavians weren't Vikings or city dwellers. They were farmers. Even most Vikings were only part-time plunderers come merchants and spent the most of their lives tilling the soil. Scandinavia remained an agrarian society until the 19th century and towns, whether they were spontaneous trading posts or planned urban projects, were modest by international standards, with houses constructed exclusively from wood. The splendor and size of Scandinavian Viking Age towns should not be exaggerated. Virtually all Scandinavians lived in rural areas. In areas where the land was poorer, they lived in isolated farms, and where the land yielded bigger harvests, there were villages where larger groups of people could live in closer proximity to each other. Houses were made out of wood, stone wasn't used as a building material until the Middle Ages. Many Scandinavians were skilled carpenters, as the archaeological remains show. Their boats and other objects could be finely carved and beautifully decorated. There were enormous social differences between the rich and the poor in Viking Age Scandinavia. Impressive graves and halls belonging to chieftains have been excavated in villages where the great majority of people lived in very modest houses, some even in so-called pit houses, basically a hole in the ground with a roof over it. Most Viking Age Scandinavians lived in modest one-family farms with a married couple, their children, and their unmarried servants, four to seven people per farm. The land they had at their disposal usually couldn't support more than that. But there were, of course, exceptions. A few people were much richer than their neighbors, and such a rich landowner usually rented out smaller farms on his land. Those renting could be family members or strangers further down the social pecking order. But there were legal restrictions on some land, the so-called Odal land, Odal means indivisible, and Odal land was inherited within the family, undivided to the eldest son, and you weren't allowed to break it up or sell it as you pleased. If you wanted to sell, 
you first had to offer it to family members, and if you did sell to a stranger, family members had the right to buy it back within a certain time frame. Oda land was also lands cultivated by the owner himself or members of his household. It wasn't rented out to others. The idea behind these restrictions was that once you start dividing the land, it doesn't take many generations before no one can actually make a living off the small plot of land they inherit. In most of Scandinavia, Odal land isn't a thing anymore, and land, just like any other property, is divided equally among heirs. In the Viking Age, a couple could marry and start a family only if they could support this new family by having land to cultivate. This led to a situation where Scandinavians married relatively late, because much like today, most people couldn't buy or rent a farm in their late teens. Most people married when they were in their mid or late twenties. Those who couldn't afford to buy a farm, or inherited one, had to remain unmarried servants in someone else's household for their entire lives. This practice lived on long after the Viking Age, until the Industrial Revolution in some places. As a consequence of the scarcity of resources, the late age of marriage and harsh conditions in general, Scandinavians had relatively few children compared to the rest of Europe. Infant mortality rates were also relatively high. There was also the pre-Christian custom of leaving unwanted children or children you couldn't provide for in the forest to die. You were allowed to do this before the child had been officially accepted into the family and given a name. But if you waited until after that ceremony, it was considered infanticide and a crime. Widows and widowers remarried quickly. This was a practical concern. You needed to be two to run a household. For this reason, many children grew up with step-parents. In pre-Christian society, men could have more than one wife, but this was fought by the church and the practice disappeared shortly after the Christianization of Scandinavia. The harsh reality of running an agricultural household meant that many elderly left their farm to their oldest son when they themselves couldn't run it anymore instead of hanging on to the property until death. They would then stay on on the farm and live under the rule of their son. But since most people didn't live longer than 40 to 50 or something like that, there were relatively few old people around. In some areas, uh, there were farms where more than just the immediate family lived most notably in Finland, especially in Karelia in the east, and the North Atlantic Islands, the family pattern was different than in the rest of Scandinavia. Here people still lived in large households with several related married couples on the same farm. 30 to 40 people could live in, at one farm. In Finland, slash-and-burn agriculture persisted, and this type of farming demands more labor than one couple with their children and servants could provide. From the 8th century and all through the Viking Age, an expansion of the population led to more and more land being used for agriculture and settlement. People both cleared forests and increased the density in already populated areas. In the beginning of the Viking Age, the climate was favorable for breaking new ground, with warm summers and mild winters. I mean, mild relative to Scandinavian standards. But by the 11th century, things started to cool off, and it started to rain more. This affected Norway, Iceland, and the other North Atlantic islands in particular. The northern and inland parts of Scandinavia were also sensitive to cold springs with nights of freezing temperatures late in May, but those parts were largely uninhabited by farmers in the Viking Age. It was, however, to become a problem later in Swedish and Finnish history. Denmark, Sweden, and Finland seemed to have managed better in the cooler climate. 
but people lived on small margins everywhere, and a year or two of bad harvests would lead to hunger and social unrest even in the richest regions of Scandinavia. Norway, Denmark and western Sweden feared too much rain that would harm the harvest. In eastern Sweden and in Finland, the fear was droughts instead. This weather pattern is largely still valid, where eastern Scandinavia, centered on the Baltic Sea, usually has significantly drier and sunnier summers than those areas bordering the Atlantic Ocean. A warmer climate could actually also be a problem, especially in the winter. In times when the road network was either non-existent or abysmal, transporting heavy goods was done on sledges in the winter. When the weather was too warm and there wasn't enough snow, you couldn't transport things properly, and that could mean economic losses, not to mention that it was really inconvenient. This was true especially in the regions that weren't coastal or where you didn't have a navigable river passing through. Over ice or snow, a sled drawn by a horse could move up to 80 kilometers per day. That was almost twice as far as a horse-drawn carriage could move on, on poor summer roads. For this reason, large markets were usually held in wintertime in northern Scandinavia. March was a popular month because then there's still enough snow to travel, but the days are already much longer and the worst cold is usually behind you. As I mentioned a few minutes ago, many farmers would earn a little extra income by hunting and selling furs. Hunting was usually a, a winter activity, because this was the time when there was less to do on the farm as far as agriculture was concerned. Furs from animals that lived in the cold subarctic climate of northern Scandinavia were also thicker and warmer than furs from animals living further south, and uh, they were the thickest and warmest in the winter. Furs from squirrel, fox, beaver, bear, wolf, and even walrus and polar bears were sought after and expensive on the continental markets, and as we've discussed in the last few episodes, they fetched a good price in the markets of Gordariki, Miklagord, and Serkland. But what did political organization look like in the Viking Age? Even though there were no states as we know them today, the Viking Age Scandinavians didn't live in an anarchical society without rules, norms, and laws. Back then, Scandinavia was divided into small political units that enjoyed a varying degree of sovereignty. Norway, for instance, was divided in as much as 30 petty kingdoms due to its geography with fjords and mountains making it difficult to control more than a small portion of the whole territory. Denmark and Sweden were also divided into several political units run by chieftains and petty kings, but far fewer since geography helps a ruler keep together a relatively compact and flat landscape as Denmark with no major mountains or forests to complicate communications and the transport of troops to unruly locations. At least since the 9th century, there have been people called kings in Scandinavia, but we're not really sure what that actually meant. When Scandinavia was Christianized, the Latin word rex was used to translate the Old Norse konungur, or king, with all the religious and historical connotations that the term rex carries. But it seems that to Viking Age Scandinavians, a konungur was something far less impressive. He was a military leader with a certain influence over other chieftains, but most likely not the uncontested ruler of all the land, and certainly not ruling by the grace of God. We do know that these kings lived in fancy halls and wore fancy clothes and surrounded themselves with fancy and important objects. They also threw lavish parties. Probably this was a part of their display of power or even the basis for their power. 
Later on in Scandinavian history, ostentatious spending on palaces, retinues, and luxury goods certainly would become a means not only to show off your wealth, but also to command respect and to gain loyalty. There is really nothing indicating that Viking Age kings didn't employ a similar modus operandi. But no Viking Age kings were powerful enough to rule without the consent and aid of rich landowners and or wide popular support from free landowning men in general. Political power was decentralized by necessity. Transportation and communication were such that it was difficult for one man to rule a kingdom before the introduction of nationwide administrations, thanks to the church. Alliances with the great landowners, who could influence what happened in their local communities, were crucial. We've already talked at some length about the thing. If you missed it or blocked it out, feel free to go back to episode 11, Here's the Thing, in order to refresh your memory. So even though the king wasn't an absolute tyrant, he was still at the very top of the social hierarchy in Viking Age Scandinavia. Then came the Jarls. A Jarl was a really important person, but his exact position and function varied over time and from place to place. He was the king's right-hand man, senior advisor and prime minister, if there was a king, and regent when there wasn't one. A king could appoint someone a Jarl over a certain area to govern in the king's name. The best-known example is perhaps the Jarls of Orkney that we've talked about in an earlier episode. After the Jarls came a variety of farmers. Even though the sources are patchy, we have some indications that there was an increasing tendency towards social stratification within the farmer class over time. This was a trend that would continue in the Middle Ages. First among the farmers were the Odal farmers, who owned Odal land. Then came the regular farmers, who had bought newly opened or rented land, after them, the descendants of freedmen, then freedmen themselves. At the very bottom of the social hierarchy and the wealth distribution were the slaves. We've already spoken at length about slavery in Scandinavia, so I won't spend too much time on the topic. I would like to add, though, that in Viking Age Scandinavia, it was seen as self-evident that someone could own another human being. That wasn't considered weird at all. Slavery survived the Viking Age and into the Christian Middle Ages. In fact, the practice continued until the 13th century in some parts of Scandinavia. Christianity didn't put an end to slavery, not in Scandinavia any more than it did in the US or in Russia, where it lived on until the 19th century. Even though the church didn't attack slavery per se, and even legitimized it as allowed according to biblical law, still, in Christian times, there were additional restrictions. You had to let your slaves take part of the sacraments, and it was forbidden to make them work on Christian holidays. Also, it was considered Christian behavior to treat your slaves well, and manumission was considered a good deed. And the liberating of slaves increased as the middle-aged progresses. One reason slavery survived for so long was that it was difficult to find people willing to farm someone else's land, so landowners felt they had to keep slaves. Otherwise, they'd have to work the land themselves, God forbid. Once all the good land was in use, when the population had grown, landless men had no choice but to work for others. At that point, slavery wasn't needed anymore, and so it finally disappeared. This a whole social hierarchy, from kings to slaves, concerned men. But what about women? We don't know too much about the lives of women in Viking Age Scandinavia, which makes sense since our knowledge of everyday life in general is limited. But that hasn't stopped people from having opinions and theories. Traditionally, Viking Age women have been marginalized in the stories told about this time in Scandinavian history, possibly a reflection of contemporary biases and attitudes. 
But sometimes, especially in the last generation or so, the status of Viking Age women have been romanticized, not least by those who want to blame Christianity or Western culture in general for women's second-class status in society. In this narrative, examples of strong and independent women from the sagas and some archaeological finds have been highlighted in order to paint a picture of some sort of golden age for women during the Viking Age. But we should take that with a grain of salt. It's true that judging by some excavations of graves and by the Icelandic sagas, there were women of high station who wielded power and in their own right. But can that be seen as an indication of how women behaved in general? Probably not. The majority of women were most likely given the rank and social status that their fathers or husbands could bestow upon them, and the women themselves were subject to their fathers and husbands' will. The women that we do know anything about tend to belong to the upper echelons of Viking Age society, coming from rich and powerful families. Their experiences and the lives they led can obviously not be taken as representative of women as a whole any more than the lives of Angela Merkel or Ivanka Trump are representative of the lives of 21st century women. Below the thin upper crust of elite women was the vast majority of Viking Age women, whose lives were mostly filled with hard work and child rearing. Women who were married to men who owned a farm were usually in charge of running the household. They kept the keys to the food store, an important task in a world where nutritional abundance was far from ubiquitous. They raised children and organized and led the work of the domestic servants and slaves. If your husband happened to be one of those Viking Age men who actually went off on a Viking raid or a trading journey, you'd be the head of the household in his absence. Women could also own property in their own right, and especially as widows, they could reach a relatively high level of autonomy. But it's worthwhile to keep in mind that no one, man or woman, could lead a truly independent life in Viking Age Scandinavia. This was a family or clan-centered society, and it was so by necessity. You just couldn't survive alone. Of course, most women weren't wealthy widows, or even wives of farm workers. The majority of women had other people telling them what to do all the time. Quite often, that person was your mother or the wife of the farmer on whose farm you worked. Worst off were the female slaves, of course. Not only were they tasked with the toughest and most unpleasant jobs at the farms where they lived, but they were also subject to their owner's sexual whims and desires. Non-consensual intercourse, even rape, wasn't a crime since female slaves didn't have any rights and weren't allowed to say no. But even though the lives of women were very different depending on their place in the social hierarchy, all, or at least almost all, women had one experience in common. They were all subordinate to men, whatever their social station. They had no political rights and couldn't vote at the thing. Their level of autonomy was decided by their male relatives. A woman was supposed to marry the man her father or guardian had decided she would marry. As has been the case throughout most of human history, a marriage wasn't primarily a love match, but rather a financial agreement between two families. Women could only refuse a proposal if they were widowed and their fathers were already dead, meaning that they had no legal guardian and thus a higher level of autonomy. There is some saga evidence that overruling or ignoring a woman's wishes, especially concerning whom she should marry, could be frowned upon or even ill-advised, but was that a cultural norm or merely a literary device? We don't know. Meaning, men who forced women to do things such as marry against their will were often characterized as mean or at least stupid in the sagas, 
and they tend to get their comeuppance in the end. But to what extent riding roughshod over a woman's will was considered a cultural taboo in Viking Age Scandinavia, we really don't know. We do know that Viking Age women travelled. There were women who participated in Viking campaigns and who came along when new lands were settled. But did they choose or to join these expeditions, or were they merely brought along by the men in their lives? Once again, unfortunately, we don't really know. By now, we have DNA evidence showing that Scandinavian women joined the men when they settled new places. So previous theories claiming that Scandinavian men would have relied exclusively on local women to start families have been disproven. There were also plenty of women present during various Viking raids. The longer the raids became, not just quick smash-and-grab affairs across the sea, and especially when Vikings started to winter in England or Francia, then women were brought along more frequently. They would cook, bake, clean, mend sails and clothes, and tend to the wounds of injured Vikings. But did they fight? Were there Viking shield maidens who participated in the battles, pillaging and killing? That's a hotly contested question these days. Some women may, on occasion, have participated in the fighting as well, but it was most likely not a common occurrence, and it probably raised eyebrows when it happened, if it happened. The sources are as tight-lipped as ever. Archaeologists have found 20 to 30 graves where women have been buried with weapons. Usually when skeletons of men are found with weapons, a sword or an axe or something like that, then it's assumed that the man in question was a warrior and that he was buried with the tools of his profession. But if the grave belongs to a woman, people often start to look for other explanations as to why she was buried with a weapon. Then the weapon is typically seen as a symbol of power and authority, not a concrete tool used by the person who was buried with it. And maybe that's all the w- these weapons were. But then perhaps all those swords found in men's graves also indicate that they were powerful, but not necessarily warriors. I'm not an archaeologist, so I can't give you an authoritative answer to this question. But it does seem likely that even though there might have been some warrior women in the Viking Age, they were the exception, and not as common as contemporary popular culture would have us believe. Next time, we'll have a look at some of the sources that have inspired this pop-cultural image of the fierce Viking women, namely the sagas. So far on the show, we've touched on the sagas in almost every episode, but we haven't really talked about them yet. And that's about to change. We'll delve deep into the world of the sagas, but we'll also discuss other literary remains from the Viking Age, especially the runestones and runes more generally. It's going to be great. But before we finish today, I'd like to answer a question I've received from a listener. I ended last time by saying that Russia had a substantial influence over the political developments in Scandinavia, for better and for worse. Kenneth would like to know what I meant by that, and especially how Russia has had a positive influence on Scandinavia. First of all, I'd like to say that I'm not really married to the phrase, But if we're going to look at Russian influence on the political developments in Scandinavia, I think there's a case to be made for some positive aspects. And please see what I'm about to say now, not so much spoilers, but teasers for future episodes. I mean, I get why Kenneth, who's from Sweden, by the way, asks the question. Sweden and Russia were both expansionist states in the Baltic region, fighting for control over the eastern shores of the Baltic Sea for over 300 years, if not more. Sweden and Russia have fought several wars during this time, and eventually Russia won the struggle and forced Sweden to retreat back to the western shores of the Baltic Sea. 
So from a Swedish perspective, the answer might be that there are a few reasons to talk of any positive Russian influence. But Sweden isn't the only Scandinavian country. Denmark, for instance, another expansionist rival of Sweden's throughout several centuries, clashed with Sweden in the south, not in the east. At times, the Danes were able to work together with the Russians in order to put pressure on Sweden from two directions simultaneously, pretty much in the same way as Sweden worked with the Ottomans to put pressure on the Russians from the south. So from a Danish perspective, Russian involvement in Scandinavian politics has had a positive effect from time to time. Now, Finland has a rather complex history with Russia and has had to fight for its life on several occasions in order to avoid being gobbled up or by Russia or the Soviet Union. But at the same time, it can be and has been argued that the Russian conquest of Finland in 1809 was a necessary step on the way to Finnish independence in 1917. When the ties to the western part of the kingdom, that is modern-day Sweden, were cut off, the Finns were faced with a question about who they were, famously expressed as we're no longer Swedes, we don't want to become Russians, so let us be Finns. In other words, if Finland had remained an integrated part of Sweden, it's possible that an independent Finland would never have been established. So if you think of an independent Finland as a good thing, which I tend to believe that the crushing majority of Finns do, then Russia has had a positive influence over the political development for them as well. Maybe not by intent, but surely by outcome. And if we talk about that argument and take it one step further and look at Sweden again, it has been argued that if Sweden hadn't lost Finland in 1809, the country probably would have been dragged into the two world wars, definitely the second one at any rate. So maybe, in a roundabout way, Russia's had a positive influence on political developments for Sweden as well. Maybe. That's all I have for you today. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Scandinavian History Podcast. If you did, please consider leaving a favorable review and perhaps a sprinkle of some stars on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. This is an excellent way to attract new listeners and to motivate me to go on producing the show. I also recommend checking out the Scandinavian History Podcast Facebook page. If you haven't already, then please go to facebook.com slash Scandinavian History Podcast. Like and follow the page if you're interested in more content related to Scandinavian history. Via the Facebook page, you can do like Kenneth and send me questions about things I've said or not said on the show. I look forward to hearing from you.